Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us from the city of London now is Bloomberg's very own and one of our finest, Guy Johnson. Good morning to you, Guy. What happens next? What happens next is Prime Minister's Questions, which is about to start in the House of Commons. It's going to be interesting to see kind of the body language that is being uh, produced by Theresa May. Does she look relaxed? Does she look comfortable with what's going on? Uh, She has just got to her feet in the House of Commons. She does look actually reasonably relaxed. Um, It it is worth pointing out that there is a theory floating around, John, that she has instigated this leadership challenge, that she has had some of her sort of colleagues uh, close to her to send letters in to make this happen. Because remember that if she wins said leadership challenge, she cannot be challenged for another year. So it's unclear at this point in time how we got to this point. But this afternoon, uh, we will start that process. We think it's going to be a vote that takes place sometime between 6 and 8 p.m. So starting roughly at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we are going to start to see that process unfolding. Uh, If she were to win, she would be secure for another year. If she were to lose, well, that certainly opens Pandora's box. And Nomura is talking about a circa 3% drop in sterling. Guy, the easy part is triggering the vote. The tough part is getting the 158 votes needed to get the Prime Minister out. How likely is that? Um, at the moment, it seems as if most people, and judging by the sort of the mathematics that Bloomberg is doing, um, she's certainly up to close to 100 certains at this point in time to back her. Uh, so I think the challenge is an uphill one for those that would like to oust Theresa May at this point in time. Uh, and the ERG, the European Research Group, which is basically a collection of Brexiteers, had until last night struggled to get the necessary votes together or the letters sent in uh, to Graham Brady of the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs to make this happen. And that maybe speaks to the idea that they, if they have struggled to get to the necessary 48 letters, they would certainly struggle to get to the uh, the necessary number of MP votes to oust the Prime Minister, John. Guy, we've learned throughout this whole process not to rule anything out, but let's go with the base case that the Prime Minister survives the vote. Does it change anything? I There is a certainly an argument that says that this, from a uh, political point of view, is a red herring. Uh, A more significant development would be a vote of confidence, a parliamentary vote of confidence that would be generated by the man that is now on his feet in the House of Commons, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party. And that is something that I think the markets would react much more violently to. Uh, It is interesting today that we don't have a very violent reaction in assets. Sterling, for instance, is having what's known as an inside day. Uh, It is trading within yesterday's price action range. The markets are not really reacting to today's news. I think if you were to see a parliamentary vote of no confidence, which could trigger a general election, that would be a much more significant development, John. Well, the Prime Minister facing down questions in the House of Commons today. In fact, right now, the Prime Minister ruling out a general election, also ruling out a second referendum as well. Guy, I know we've got to run over to, uh, to Westminster, so we're going to let you run. Thank you very much for dropping by the studio for us. I want to bring in Eric Nielsen now, Unicredit Group Chief Economist, who also joins us from our European headquarters in the City of London. Eric, good morning to you, sir. A big, big list of issues in Europe. 
For the Europeans, where does Brexit rank? Low. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, yeah, I, I was just I was just back from Berlin, and uh, and you would be surprised how uh, slightly amused, confused, and um, and and not top of the list issues uh, that Brexit is uh, in Berlin, Rome, and Paris. Isn't that part of the problem for the Prime Minister, especially now where the French have increasingly uh, bigger domestic problems? The Italians have had right. them for a while, and Germany. Relative to the stability we've seen for a long time, Eric, Germany has its own issues. Well, I, I mean, let me take that first. I, I actually think Germany in many ways looked like the most stable democracy about of any major countries. I mean, we just had a leadership change in the biggest party uh, and the first contested one for about 50 years. And afterwards, the three contestants congratulated each other and and were friends and moved off. If to the extent you can be friends in politics, right? So, <laughs> so, so that's actually quite stable, I, I think. I think what your point is right in the sense that it's a problem for Britain. But the but the problem for Britain is that the Euro EU twenty seven have been amazingly united in by any stretch of the imagination through these two years of negotiations. EU twenty seven have been more united than the government or even the government party inside uh, Westminster. Yeah. This is quite amazing, right? Uh, and that has obviously weakened Theresa May's hand tremendously. And it has basically proven the Brexiteers' arrogance of, well, German car makers need us, or that, or all this completely nonsense. The Europeans and the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister essentially on a tour of the European capitals before this vote of confidence came up, Eric. Do you see any chance of her securing any concessions whatsoever from the Europeans? N- none of substance. Uh, they keep saying, well, well, we'll help with the interpretation, right? Uh, we'll, we'll help with some clarification so of, uh, of the political uh, memorandum, not the, not the treaty or not the, the, the agreement, the, the many hundred pages. So that will not be reopened. That's completely inconceivable in my opinion. But uh, but they will find they would be happy to find some sort of wording that sort of helps a little bit here and there maybe, but but to be honest, I it, this is not anything of a nature that Theresa May can come back and say, see, I got something better. It it really is. It's, do, do you have a base case, Eric, on what happens here? <laughs> yeah, we have to have a base case in my what business, is it, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a tough one. I so I so I think she will survive. Uh, her hand will be slightly strengthened because, as Guy said, uh, now there can be no no challenge to her for twelve months. And I think if you if she wins today or tonight with a, just a decent majority, which I think is a quite likely outcome, then uh, I think she has a little bit of a of a of a of a base on which to say to her party members, "You have to vote for my deal." So I think actually the chance that her deals deal comes through has increased a little bit. Big meeting on Thursday outside of all of this, and it's the European Central Bank, Eric, with uh, yes. President Draghi. No change to policy expected, but I think that news conference is going to be fascinating. There is so much going on on the continent. What are you looking for? I'm looking for most and foremost forward guidance on the reinvestment. Uh, it is when you think about the world today and the somewhat weaker growth numbers in Germany and other parts of Europe, it's by any stretch of the imagination an unfortunate time to end QE uh, by the end of this month, right? So, so the but that's set in stone now. So, what does he do to try to persuade us that the monetary policy stance is not really tighten, tightening? It, it is in a sense, and I think the answer to that is 
uh, a, a pretty firm forward guidance that they will commit to reinvest the entire principal for at least, say, two or three years. Three years what the Fed did, so but at least two years. And maybe talk about some liquidity provision that TLTRO extended uh, before June or something. But but it's it's a tough one for the ECB now because the world is looking pretty nasty, right? Yeah. And they are in, a, in the process of, of rolling off or ending the QE, which is a very unfortunate. Hey, Eric, great to catch up with you. So much going on. Eric Nielsen, Unicredit Group Chief Economist, joining us out of the City of London. Let's look at something stable like a fixed income market. Priya Misra uh, joins us uh, this morning. Priya, good morning. Hello, morning. Thanks for uh, having me. We have a low-yield regime. I've been watching 210 spread. I'm distracted here in London. And I've been watching 210 spread go nowhere, and yet some stability in the 10-year, 2.89%. Do you have a bet right now on what price and yield will do? So in the 10-year, um, I think we're in a range. We're really, I think, 280 to 3%. I mean, I was pounding the table when we were above 3%. That uh, that was not sustained. I think there's enough growth headwinds with real rates rising and no evidence that structural growth in the U.S. was higher. I you know, wanted to fade the rise in rates, and I would still fade the rise in rates. But, you know, we have repriced the Fed significantly. So at this point to say rates are going lower, I think we need evidence that the U.S. economy economy is actually slowing. And we need evidence that the Fed is going to continue to march on with gradual hikes, irrespective of the tightening in financial conditions. Both of those, I would say the U.S. economy seems okay. All the U.S. data, I mean, we'll have inflation today, but the data suggests the economy is still growing above potential. And I have to say the Fed is sounding, um, you know, somewhat more cautious and talking about uncertainty. So I think the risk of policy mistake is somewhat lower. So I think we stay stable. I mean, the Brexit thing is really being viewed as something that should affect gilts rather than treasuries. Um, but I think the Fed next week, right. ECB tomorrow, there's a, there's a couple of events in, in the near term that could move it. But I think we stay somewhat range-bound. We're, you know, we're dashing through December, but Priya, since the last time we spoke to you, we've seen major changes not only in Fed view. But in the makeup of the yield market, frankly, the volatility of the stock market, and yet the VIX only 21.29. And within all of that, you have to reframe a 2019 view. Let me cut to the chase. Do you just clip a coupon in the bond market for next year? Or do you have to be defensive and go short duration? Or can you be opportunistic here? So I think for 2019, yes, I think it's an opportunistic environment. You have oh. to be nimble. Um, I think you can st- certainly stay in the front end. But, you know, when, when duration, when tenure gets to 3% or higher, I think it ex- it makes sense to extend some of that duration. But, again, just trade in a very opportunistic fashion because I think the market is dealing with higher risk premiums in every yeah. asset class. Just because now the Fed is at neutral or very close to neutral, the risk of a policy mistake increases and real rates are rising. So I think every asset class right. you have to be opportunistic, not just in fixed income. I would say in credit, in uh, equities. Yeah. Way you in have the, to way yeah. into the just because of time left, uh, Priya. Way in on the leverage loan idea. This is front and center for so many listeners. Is the extended part of your world? Right. 
I think there's a credit component which, you know, default rates are still very low. So our credit strategists still believe that as long as the economy is growing above potential, the credit component is 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 uh, fairly priced. It's the floating rate component. I think a lot of people bought leverage loans because the Fed was going to continue to hike and the market wasn't pricing in as much in hikes. I don't find that as attractive now. We're at neutral, so we're talking two hikes, three hikes at the most, yeah. and the market's already pricing in two. So I think you have to um, move away a little bit from leverage loans into no. thinking about duration because the Fed is not on a preset path here. Priya, thank you so much. Priya Mesereau is too short today with TD Securities. Should we bring in Adam Posen? Bring him in from Vietnam, I'm told. Peterson Institute for International Economics President, formerly of the Bank of England. Adam, always great to catch up with you. What do you reckon the conversation's like on the MPC on Threadneedle Street at the moment? Oh, geez, that's a really good question. I think that the MPC is trying to is watching the cable very, very closely, and they are trying to figure out uh, how much this sticks versus being some intraday blip. And what do you think it is, Adam? I think it's an intraday blip. Um, the uh, it's hard to disentangle. I mean, part of the reason sterling is strengthened is because people are watching Corbyn punt his opportunity, and there's so much anti-Corbyn sentiment, some of it for good reason, that the uh, part of the relief in sterling is about Corbyn and Labour, not so much about Brexit. Adam Posen, I want you to take a victory lap. You have been one very cautious about four, five, six, eight, twelve rate increases. And you know, I, I look in 2020, 2018 hindsight, and you look like a genius. Cut to the chase, the view forward for Chairman Powell. Uh, the chase of my no longer looking like a genius. It's it's going to be the market. I think now priced it about right that we're somewhere north of one twenty five bit move in twenty nineteen. Uh, largely for the reasons my colleague Jason Furman articulated in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago. The if, if the weird thing about his speech, Tom, was that he framed it in terms of our star, in terms of the interest rate, neutral interest rate, instead of in terms of the data. The data flow could have easily justified the pause. Not so much this R star yeah. stuff. Well, I guess for data, you know, and you call it that R star stuff as well. Let's go, John Farrell. Can I go wonky with Dr. Posen? Of course. Green okay. light. Okay. John Williams, uh, Adam Posen, in one of his ideas of what to do given low rates and permanently entrenched low terminal values, is to target to nominal GDP. We target to inflation-adjusted GDP for a host of Posen-like reasons. Do we need to go back to the 50s and the 60s and target to nominal growth plus an inflation dynamic? Well, I think it's the right idea in the sense, Dom, that it's, it's trying to take into account both pieces of the dual mandate, and it's trying to take into account that if you're undershooting on inflation, you've got to try to make that up. So in those senses, I'm very sympathetic. The problem is it's not clear to me either, A, that you have any easier time getting the desired result by simply saying you're targeting nominal GDP. And B, if you end up with a nominal GDP target and say you get 4% inflation and 1% growth, that's supposed to be just as happy for you as 4% growth and 1% inflation. I'm not sure that's politically sustainable. What is politically sustainable? We've got a Fed uh, with a president critical of their approach. 
the the I guess I'll call them hawks say we've got to get some lifted rates to develop a, 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 a not a substantial a measured real yield an actual inflation adjusted yield to provide normal incentives within the business system. I mean, where do you fall in that great conundrum? I fall in the great conundrum in the, unfortunately, the stop clock that is President Trump happens to be right at the moment, which is there's good reason to wait and see before raising rates further. And I think to the credit of the FOMC so far, they're not preventing themselves from doing what they think is right out of fear of looking like they're accommodating the president. John, is that a break exclusive or surveillance break exclusive? You can call it, you can call it that if you wish. I think, Adam, I think we I, need to put that I, out. I do wide. wonder whether it makes it a little bit more difficult just in terms of the optics to back away from the hikes you've planned when the president's putting so much pressure on you. No, John, absolutely. I think that's, that's a concern. Um, and this has always been the problem, right? When you're in a central bank, you you sometimes get caught up in the sort of what, how people perceive what your perception is of what you're doing. It becomes this big circle. I think, unlike the Supreme Court, the FOMC <clears throat> seems to be, at least at the moment, just calling the balls and strikes as they come in. Now, you can critique that about they're not giving you enough forward-looking guidance, but I actually was very sympathetic yeah. to Chair Powell's uh, Jackson Hole speech in which he backed off that. So. Dr. Posen, you are one of our arch experts on not only German economics, but how it folds into the post-World War II German experience. There was that image yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, I'm losing track, folks, of Prime Minister May in her desperation with a Chancellor Merkel who is simply moving on. Do you look at this as a smooth transition for Germany? to a new set of government, or is it a true generational change? Wow, it's a really good question, Tom. To me, it is a true generational change in that I don't know enough about AKK, her her likely successor, um, but it is a generational change in that you're going to have a group of people who neither grew up under the Soviets, nor grew up in the post-war glow of American occupation and beneficence. And so this is a Germany that is a generation that is totally either in Europe or in its own. And that's going to be very difficult to manage. I, I think it is a real shift. I mean, it really harkens back to almost a 17th century Germany. I mean, as Dr. Kissinger talks about a Westphalian uh, Germany, it, it really harkens back to that, doesn't it? Well, I mean, part of the point of Dr. Kissinger's discussion of Westphalia is the idea that you don't interfere past other people's borders. You you try to keep the borders strict. And, you know, that's going to be essentially the question for Germany going forward is, are they willing to allow enough interference internally so that they can exert a real EU influence? Because at some point, the, the bill does come due for Germany being hypocritical on the banking system, being hypocritical on fiscal policies. I mean, the EU either there is this toll that I know you and John and others have talked yeah. about that we're seeing with Macron now that because Germany didn't, Merkel didn't come through in the last year with Eurozone reforms, other people are distrusting right. now in a way they haven't for a while. Adam Poston, great to catch up with you. As always, Peterson Institute for International Economics President. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 